Thanks for listening to the Crosspoint Podcast. This is the Young Adults Ministry of the Franklin Road Baptist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Here we desire to see this generation of young adults reached and revived with the gospel of Christ. We believe our generation has the opportunity to change the world as we know it. We'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Franklin Road Baptist Church. Our prayer is that our podcast will help you grow in your relationship with God. Enjoy the Crosspoint Podcast. Anyways, Philippians chapter number 2. Let's look at verse number 5 through 13 tonight. Um, We've been in this series for four weeks now entitled Finding Joy. Finding Joy. And um, the goal of it has really been that in Christianity today and really in our world today, it seems like that there's been a loss of joy. There's a huge, um, almost victim mentality, even among Christians. And so when we started off this series, one of the things that I told you that was really a prayer for this series was found in Psalm 51, where David says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Here's the truth about salvation and your faith and your relationship with God is that it should should bring joy. It is intended to produce a joyful spirit within you. But most of the time, because of the trials of life, because of the hard times of life, we tend to lose that joy very quickly. And as we learned really at the introduction, Paul is writing this book from prison. And when we kind of introduced the book, what we said was that Paul is writing this book more from the perspective of a cheerleader. Almost, you guys are going the right way, you're doing the right thing, let me encourage you to keep going. And so you'll see that come out a lot in this passage and in these verses tonight. But before we begin, I want to just remind you of what we talked about and what we really closed out with in verse number four last week. And that was that Christian unity, unity around what matters, is is really a source of Christian joy. And that if we can't unify around what matters to God, then chances are we will not experience joy. You'll experience division. You'll experience confusion. You'll you'll experience a lot of different emotions, none of them being joy that should be produced as a result of your Christian faith and your relationship with God. And so as Paul introduces this idea of unity in this book, he's introducing it and he says that it is a unity around the gospel. It's a unity around what matters. It's a unity around what matters to God. And so I kind of closed last week by telling you and kind of encouraging you with a little bit of what our previous conversation was before we got to this part, is that there's a lot of opinions in the world today. The truth is, is that you can go to 20 different people and get 20 different opinions about certain things. And that's just the state we live in. That is human nature. And as Christians, there are going to be things that you differ on, okay? There's going to be things that you agree with someone about, and there's going to be things that you strongly disagree with someone about. But at the end of the day, Christian unity does not revolve around the things of this world. It revolves around the things of God. And so when we talk about Christian unity, we're not talking about everybody's got to agree on everything. Everybody's got to adhere to the exact same thing. Everybody's got to live their life the exact same way. God is not interested in making cookie-cutter Christians. But he is interested in us looking at what matters and looking at what the Bible says is important and being unified around that purpose. 
And so as he continues this thought, he really focuses on Jesus Christ, which, by the way, if there is anything that we should be unified on as Christians, it is who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And so we're going to read what is actually considered the kenosis passage. Um, if you are familiar with kind of that name, you know that, that that word kenosis is the word veil. Okay, So this is really the passage of scripture that teaches us how Jesus Christ veiled himself as a human being, how he wrapped himself as a human being even though he was God. Let's learn about what that means. Let's look at verse number 5. He says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Which Let's stop for just a second and remind ourselves of what we closed out with on verse number 4. Verse number 4, he's closing by saying, you need to focus on the needs of others, not just on your own needs. And one of the resounding themes of Philippians and one of the resounding themes of Christian joy is that it is found not by looking within, but by looking outside. Not by looking at what I need and what I can do for myself, which is what the world would tell you where, where joy was found, but by looking on the needs of others. And so now he continues and he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So what is that mind? Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, most people, we would typically just stop at those verses because they do go together. But there's actually a response in verses 12 and 13 that I think it's important for us to attach to those verses. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I want you to go back up and read verse number five with me out loud together. Verse number five, ready, begin. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now let's skip down and look at verse number 13. Let's read it out loud together. Ready, begin. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so with that in mind, let's look at Philippians chapter number 2, verses 5 through 13. And here's kind of the thought that Christian joy is a result of living like Christ and preparing to see him. Living the Christian life like Christ brings us joy, and preparing to meet Him is a source of joy. So joy is found as we begin to live like Christ and prepare to meet Him. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this opportunity. Lord, we thank You for uh, Your Word. Lord, may we never take it for granted. Lord, I pray that You would take away the distractions that we might have tonight. Lord, help us to purely focus on what You have for us out of these verses. Lord, You're the greatest example that we can have in this life. Lord, You're the one who showed us how to sacrifice and, Lord, how to love and, Lord, really how to even find joy by living like You did. I pray that you would help us as we look into your word. Lord, I pray that you would once again give me the words to say. Lord, fill me with your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read through Scripture, specifically the New Testament, I try to get a feel for what Jesus Christ kind of looked like. Um, I know for most of us in this generation and for most of us as young adults, we are visual learners, we're visual thinkers, we like to see stuff visually, and so a lot of times when I read through scripture, I try to get a little bit of a visual of what it would look like. And here's one of the things that I try to ask myself when I, specifically when I read through the Gospels, is maybe when I get a little bit of a picture of what I think Jesus did or how he acted or how he interacted with someone, I have to ask myself, is that how I interact with someone? Is that how I seem to go about my day? And here's the sad truth that I am often confronted with in myself, but I think that if we're honest, we're all confronted with, if we would ask ourselves that same question, is that most of us do not live lives that look like Christ. One of the things that I've been challenged about recently is the pace that it seems like, once again, we can't prove it, but the pace that it seems like that Jesus lived his life. The truth is, is that you and I are, are really blessed and cursed and that we can do anything that we want, and we can typically do it in a pretty quick time frame, all right? I remember that there were times when I was in college, and something would happen, and I would go, and I would get on southwest.com, and I would find a ticket, and I would fly home from college, and in just a few hours, I could be back at home from over 2,000 miles away. Some of you, I know that if you go to college in Florida, it seems like that there's like a revolving door of Pensacola students because you guys come home on a weekend or there'll be someone else that comes home on another weekend and you just catch every ride going to Murfreesboro. And then here's, this, here's the state that we live in, okay? Is that for most of us, no matter where we're at in this country or in this world, we can get back home faster than sometimes Jesus could have gotten from city to city. Let that sink in that you could almost get across America in the time that it would take Jesus to walk from city to city. And with that, when you think about that, that means that he probably wasn't in too big of a rush. Like, what are you going to do, run? Like, I, I mean, oh, man, uh, the next city that we need to go to is 14 miles away. Let's run it. I would have been disqualified as a disciple like immediately. Like, we're running? Well, no. I was kind of thinking like a mile, then rest, a mile, then rest. And so we live at such a fast pace, in a fast-paced world, in a fast-paced society, that many times our lifestyle steals us, and I want you to listen to this, our lifestyle steals us from living like Jesus, and as a result... When we don't live like Jesus, we don't have very much joy. When we live in a world to where, well, I'm mad because I saw this on social media, or I'm ticked at this person because they said this about me, or I had a bad day at work, or maybe I had a bad conversation with my boyfriend, or a bad conversation with my girlfriend, or school's hard, and we've got all these things that just consume us. And all they are are their distractions from living like Jesus Christ. And when you read through Scripture and you see Jesus, I don't think you see Jesus having a bad day. Okay? I don't think you see him being grumpy. Right? I actually joked a couple of weeks ago when we talked about um, Jesus being in the bottom of the boat and the disciples coming and waking him up that he doesn't say anything, at least from what we have recorded in Scripture. And I made the joke that it's like Jesus hadn't had his coffee yet, okay? Guess what? 
That's not the Jesus that you worship. It wasn't a Jesus that was bothered by people wanting him, by people coming to worship him. And most of us, we live in this world to where we let our joy be affected by where we're at in that day or in that week. And here's what I basically want to propose to you tonight, is that your joy does not have to be a roller coaster. It can actually be the most stable part of your life when you choose to live like Jesus Christ. And for many of us, if you could look at the things that have robbed you of joy this week, I guarantee you that they are not things that are of God, but they are things that are of this world. They're worries that you've had creep into your life about maybe what you're going to do next or how college is going to work out or whether or not you're going to get a job or whether or not you're going to get the job you want or are you going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to see this friend again? How's things going in this relationship? How's things going with my family? Whatever the case may be, many times those are the things that steal Christian joy from us. But the truth is, is that it is actually found not in where we're at, but who we know and how, we, how close and how closely we live like him. So with that in mind, let's look at three thoughts. First of all, I want you to see this, that joy is found in Christ-like mindfulness. Okay, I'm going to define that for you. But joy is found in Christ-like mindfulness. Look at verse number five. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Have you ever heard someone say, I wish I could get in someone's mind. I wish I could get in someone's brain. Ever heard someone say that? Or you'll see maybe like sometimes these documentaries where they'll interview people and they'll say, we just want to get inside their brain. Okay, it's all about trying to learn like what made you who you are. And maybe that was because they were great at something. Maybe it's because they were awful at something. And so we want to get a glimpse into someone's mind or into someone's brain. Will these verses give us a glimpse into Jesus Christ, our Savior's mind? So we should take them seriously. And here's what I want you to see before I give you the sub points under this. And really, we break down these verses. Before we get into that, I want you to see two quick things. Okay, look at these verses and look at the two forms that, he, that these verses show Jesus Christ as, okay? The first form is that they show him as God. Look at verse number 6. It says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So here you have a God-like form, okay? Well, what, does, what typically goes with a God-like form? What would be the normal things that would go with a God-like form? Worship, right? That... If you were a king in those days, guess what? You had servants, you had people that bowed down, that beckoned at your call, that you were who people served. So you have God, but I want you to watch this. In verse number 7, But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. So he was God, but he didn't bow to the normal kind of status quo of being a god. Then look at verse number 8, or at the end of verse number 7. It says, and was made in the likeness of man. Now, now we see, we first we see his God form, now we see his man form, okay? As his man form, what would be the normal thing to do? Be scared of death, right? Like, well, I don't really want to die. I don't really want to be obedient. Human beings, just as a general consensus, aren't really the greatest at obe- obedience, are we? We're not really the greatest at humility either. Like, 
were arrogant, disobedient, frightened people of death, is basically what we are. Jesus was the exact opposite of all those as a man. It says this, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now hang on to that thought, and we'll come back to it at the end. So first of all, what does the mind of Christ look like? How can we get to know what's inside the mind of our Savior that we worship and that saved us? First of all, the mind of Christ is not self-promoting. The mind of Christ is not self-promoting. This is talking about his godlike form in verse number 7. It says, But made himself of no reputation but made himself of no reputation that doesn't mean that he gave himself a bad reputation here's what that means it means that he didn't care about what people always thought of him it means that he didn't really promote himself that it wasn't hey look at me i'm jesus i'm that that messiah that you've prayed for and by the way he had every right to do that he was god But yet Jesus did not come on this earth and say, look at me. In fact, many of the scriptures that you read throughout the gospel, Jesus himself reflected praise to God, his heavenly father. That even though we had God in human form, he still reflected praise to the father. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about making him look good. Because let's just be honest. If you knew that you were the Messiah, how much would you promote yourself? Let's put it in modern day context, okay? I actually thought about this today when I was reading it. If you were the Messiah and you had a social media account, what would it look like? Probably some pictures of you like healing people with a nice little quote over to the side, right? Like, like <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to think of like a cheesy quote that would be over to the side, Okay probably have a photographer, like you wouldn't have disciples, you would have like paparazzi, okay? Like, hey, Peter, can you, can you kind of get in the right light so that you can make me look good and so that, right? He had every right to do that because why? He was here to build followers. He was here to make disciples and to get people to follow him. But he didn't do it in the way that we do it, right? We do it because it's like, well, I could put this on social media because everybody would think that was pretty cool, right? Like, like, um, and then I'll show it to five other friends and make sure that they think it's cool because if those five friends think it's cool, then my other 296 followers are definitely going to think that it's cool, right? That's not what Jesus did. He was God, and yet he didn't promote himself. But notice what he did do, that he had the mind of a servant. So the mind of Christ is service. I said that sometimes I like to read through the Gospels and try to get a visual of what, how Jesus acted. If you've ever read the book of Mark, and hopefully you have at some point in your life, if not, I would encourage you to do so. One of the keys to it is that it was written to the Romans. And the, the Romans were impressed, for lack of a better term, with busyness, with doing, with action. And so one of the words that you see very often in the book of Mark is straightway. And, the, and, he, and there's a lot of ands. And then he did this. And then he did this. And here's what you almost get a, a little visual of of Jesus doing. Is that he's going from good thing to good thing to good thing. Helping people and serving people. Is that what would be said about your life? That you have busied yourself with others, that you have filled your schedule in serving someone else. 
The sad truth about us as human beings is that most of the time we've filled our schedules with what we need. Right? Well, I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and we get to the end of the day, and we have not served anybody other than number one. And the mind of Christ does not self-promote, rather it serves. But then notice also that the mind of Christ is humble to the plan of God. So now we move to his human side, his man side. Verse number 7 says, But made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of the servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So what did he do as a man? And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself to what? And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He said, Lord, this is what you want to do with me. I'm going to let you do that. I'm going to be humble to it, but then I'm also, lastly, is the mind of Christ is obedient to the plan of God. Here's what we know when we read this passage. Is that Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane actually prayed that this cup would pass from him. So even though he was humble and obedient, it didn't mean that he liked it. And here's what I want you to see, and here's kind of a a part of the application. Is that there will be things in your life that come in that you don't like, and that chances are, if you had the power and will to change them, you would. We all have those moments. We all have those times. But in those moments, you have to step back and ask yourself, is God working through this? Is he teaching me something? And if he is, then it's your calling to be humble and obedient to the word of God and to the plan of God. To say, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm not even really super thrilled about it. But I'm going to choose to trust you. I'm going to choose to obey you. I'm going to humbly submit myself to you because I want to see you do something in my life. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to jot down this one statement and then we'll be done. If you and I desire joy, it may be found, it, it may not be found by succeeding at the cultural norms, but it can be found in being like Christ. So here's what I want you to jot down. It could be that joy is found in never being too great to serve and never being too small to simply obey. It could be that joy can be found in never being too great to serve and never being too small to simply obey. Here's what we see exemplified by Jesus Christ, is that he had every opportunity and every right to come to this earth and say, all right, I'm God, everybody serve me, but he chose to serve. He never got too big to serve someone else, but he also never got too small to simply say, I'm going to obey. And for you and I as human beings, here's what, here's kind of the American dream, right? There's really one of two ways that you can break people down in in humanity. Is that they're either big enough to where everybody serves them and they have arrived and they're not going to serve anybody else. It's all about me. And so guess what? I worked hard to get to this point and so now I'm going to make sure that everybody knows it. And they've gotten too big to serve. But the other side of the coin is that for some that maybe haven't arrived yet, is that we feel so small that it's kind of like, well, it's cool. If I haven't arrived, I'm just going to float through life. I'm just going to do what I want to do. God's commands aren't that important. God's principles aren't that important. So I'm just going to do life my way. 
And in both of those perspectives, we miss living like Christ. Is that we never should get too big to serve and never get too small to simply obey. Secondly, not only is joy found in Christ-like mindfulness or being like Christ in your mind and in your actions, but joy is also found in eternal awareness. Joy is found in eternal awareness. Look at verse number 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and of in things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sometimes I think that as Christians we get kind of a warped perspective of eternity. Like we think that it's all going to be about like, oh sweet, we're going to sit at a super big long farmhouse table at the marriage supper of the Lamb and like we've, we've all made like these, oh, there's going to be pizza at the marriage supper of the lamb. There's going to be hot dogs at the marriage supper of the lamb. It's probably going to be veggies, okay? And you're going to like it because it's heaven. So just get over it, right? But we have like this, like, oh, I'm just going to frolic through the, the streets of gold for the rest of eternity. Like that it's all about me and like my big mansion. And like we think about like, oh, well, I want a mansion on a lake. And I want a mansion with pillars. And I... And we just end up taking our earthly dreams to heaven, right? And it's not like that at all. Like, in fact, if we somehow think that heaven is just like all the stuff we didn't get on earth, you're going to miss it. Like, oh, sweet, I finally got the new iPhone in heaven. That's not how heaven works, okay? Heaven has a very intentional spiritual purpose, and it has nothing to do with what we want and everything to do with what God deserves. And in these two verses, here's what you get to see. You get to see a little glimpse of what eternity will be like. And here's the question that I want to ask you as we go down through these three thoughts that are in these verses. Is that how much of your earthly life looks like eternity? How much of your earthly life looks like eternity? The sad thing about most Christians is that we're going to have a rude awakening when we get to heaven. Like, oh man, I didn't know this is what it was going to be. I didn't know that this is what I was going to do. We're not going to be disappointed because, like I said, it's heaven. But we better start to live on this earth how we're going to live out the rest of eternity. So what, does these, what do these verses teach us about eternity? First of all, eternity will see Jesus Christ exalted. Eternity will see Jesus Christ exalted. It says that God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. There's so many phrases in, this, in these verses that I just want to go off on. We don't have the time to do that, so we're just going to stay focused, okay? God exalted Jesus Christ because of who he was, because of his name, because of his association with, with the Heavenly Father. You and I, as children of God who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, better begin to practice exalting Jesus Christ and God in our daily lives. That means in our financial decisions. That means in our relationship decisions. That means in our entertainment. That means in how we interact with people. That means in our decisions. If you have a job or you have an opportunity that is going to pull you away from God, don't look at the dollar signs. Look at who it is pulling you away from. Look at, look at what it could possibly do in your life. Stop looking at the worldly perspective and look at the godly perspective. 
Do you want God to get glory out of your life? Then put yourself in a position. Put yourself around people that are going to help you exalt him more. Put yourself in dating relationships that are going to help you spiritually, not hurt you spiritually. Put yourself in financial situations to where you're putting God first, not maybe your, your retirement plan. And we've bought into this lie that culture gets to tell us how to live the Christian life or that we have to have this weird like, like crossover between Christianity and modern-day culture. They blend perfectly. But guess what? It's normally not the way we want it to because we should choose God's way first every single time. So eternity will see God exalted, will see Jesus Christ exalted. Secondly, eternity will see Jesus Christ worshiped. Look at verse number 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. In eternity, we will see Jesus Christ that has been shunned on this earth, earth worshiped by everyone. Sometimes I think we get worked up because it's like, well, the people that have everything going wrong in their life, they just need the gospel. Yeah, you and I know that. And guess what? Deep down, I think if you drilled hard enough, they probably would know that they needed it. But that's still a choice that has to be made. And one of these days, the world that has rejected Jesus Christ will worship him. But you want to know how you change the narrative on that? You, as a Christian, need to be worshiping him. You as a child of God who knows who he is and knows what God's done for you, you better have a habit of worship. And let me just say, I know that on Sundays we call it a worship service, but that's not the only time in the week that you're allowed to worship. Okay? I've said this a couple times since kind of the coronavirus thing, is that church was never intended to, take the, to be like take the place of your Christian life. It was intended to complement your Christian life. When you walk in these doors on Sunday, it should complement what happened Monday through Saturday, not get you through the week. And I think for most of us, when we walk in the doors of the church on Sunday, it's like the little shot in the arm, like, whew, all right, can make it another week, let's go. No, your personal walk with God should cause you to walk in these doors and say, whoo, all right, I'm ready for this. Do you see the difference in the attitude? And eternity will see Jesus Christ worship. So you and I, as children of God, who once again have seen God for who he is, have seen what Jesus Christ has done for us, we should be the most willing people to worship him. Thirdly, not only will eternity see Jesus Christ exalted and worshiped, but eternity will see Jesus Christ confessed as Lord. See Jesus Christ confessed as Lord. Look at verse number 11. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The application for you and I, when we see that Jesus Christ will be confessed as Lord, is this. That if He is not Lord of your life, then He is not Lord at all. I'm not saying that you're not saved, okay? That's not, don't, don't misquote that or misrepresent that. But it's funny how good we are at claiming salvation, yet how bad we are at surrendering. Salvation, honestly, if you want to boil it down to it, is just a good decision. 
But surrender is where we get selfish. And so because of that, we're not very good at giving the Lord control of our life. And as a result of that, I personally believe that that is why most Christians don't experience a lot of joy. Oh, but God, what if you do this? But God, I don't get that. But God, I... And we spend all of our time on this earth doubting God's plan rather than saying, God, I'm just going to trust you. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. And if I think too hard about it, it probably makes me a little bit upset. But because I know who you are and because I have surrendered myself to you, then I'm going to choose to trust you. I've used this illustration and this statement I don't know how many times in this class, but I think it bears repeating until it gets inside your brain. Is that I have yet to meet anyone that at the end of their life were, were disappointed that they gave their best and their most to God. I haven't. And to be completely honest with you, I don't think I will. I've seen plenty of people and read plenty of stories and heard plenty of personal testimonies as someone was getting ready to pass away of, oh, I, wish, I wish I would have done more. And I would hate to think that in my last moments on this earth that I spent them thinking about how much more I could have done for God and slip into eternity and see Him face to face knowing that I could have done more. Wouldn't it be great to go out of this world thinking, God, I gave you the best that I had. How many of you remember maybe playing sports in high school or growing up or maybe some of you that played college sports or something? You remember the feeling of losing, but the feeling of doing your best. It was hard to walk off the court or off the field knowing that you lost, right? But it had a different slant when you knew that you just gave it, your, like you just gave your guts up for it, right? It almost had, had a way of offsetting the loss a little bit. I remember when I would coach, if we lost and we played awful, I was ticked. Like, you guys, yeah, you deserve to lose. Like, just go ahead and put the, put the tally in the loss column because you stunk it up. But in the games where we played good and we lost, that's the, that's the best you can ask for. My son started playing t-ball this week. He's like all about it. Like I put, we put his jersey on him, and I was like, you want your shirt tail tucked in or untucked? And he's like, untucked. It gets way too hot. And so I, I left it untucked, and he was like looking at himself in the mirror. He's like, Dad, that's not how the major leaguers look. I want it tucked in. I was like, all right, we're going to go that route, huh? But last night he was going to bed and he was like, did we win or did we lose? I said, I actually think we tied. And he, and he goes, oh, man, I really wanted to win. And I said, well, let me ask you something. And I, he actually had a pretty good game last night. And so I said, did you do your best? Yes, sir. I said, did you, did you obey and did you listen? Did you try to do what we, were, what we coached you about and teach you? Yeah, I think so. I said, then that's all that you can do, buddy. And here's what we've got to recognize as Christians is that in the world's eyes, they might have chalked your life up as a loss. But what you have to answer for is not what the world has said that you won or lost about. What you have to stand before God and answer for is how well you did for Him.
And guess what? If those around you see that as a loss, but God sees it as a win, you better become satisfied with that. You better stop looking at who you can please and who thinks you're a winner for the 70 or 80 years that you're here on this earth and start looking at what it means to win in light of eternity. And then the last thing is this. Joy is found in spiritual progress. Joy is found in spiritual progress. The reason that I wanted to tie these verses together is that Anytime you see wherefore or therefore, you guys have all heard the cheesy little saying, and I'm going to go ahead and say it. Anytime you see wherefore or therefore, you got to see why it's wherefore or therefore. That's, I, included, I added wherefore because our word is wherefore. Typically, that statement only includes therefore. And now that I've said it out loud, wherefore does not work in the quote, all right? <laughs> but you have to see what it's talking about. And here's what Paul says in verse number 12. As a result of seeing the mind of Jesus Christ... And as a result of seeing what eternity looks like, here's what you need to do. So what does he want us to do? What does he want us to see? I think that you can see in these verses that he wants us to see that there needs to be joy, and there can be joy that is found in spiritual progress or spiritual growth. Look at verse number 12. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you say, okay, I know that, I know that joy is found in living like Christ and being mindful of who he is. I know that joy is probably found even as I think about what eternity is going to be like and as I prepare for that. What does that mean in your day-to-day life? And so we've got a couple of questions that I think will help you evaluate your spiritual progress. First of all, how is your obedience to God? How is your obedience to God? He says in verse number 12, he says, As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So the two questions that you have underneath, how is your obedience to God, is how is your obedience to God when someone is watching, and how is your obedience to God when no one is watching? You've heard it said that the true character of a person is seen by what they do when no one is watching. And what Paul says is, you guys actually got better at obeying when I left. Probably not too many parents can say that, right? Like, oh, congratulations. I'm a parent, and I can't say that. Oh, congratulations, Baylor. You obeyed so much better when mommy and daddy walked outside. Last night I walked in Baylor's room, and I told her to throw um, Starburst trash she had ate a starburst without permission of course and so she ate a starburst and i said baylor go pick up your starburst trash and put it in the trash can last night i was walking in her room to pray with her and put her to bed and i looked in like the little door door jam thing like the little hole and her starburst wrapper was like shoved back in there and and so i said baylor did you throw your starburst trash away no i said where is it he's right there in the door That's not the trash can, okay? No one watched her all, walk all the way to the trash can and, and put it in. So guess what? No one was watching, so she just put it wherever she wanted. Like, here's a nice little hole that I can shove that in. Most people don't do better when no one is watching. 
Oh, we're pretty good at obeying as long as mom and dad's standing next to us. We're pretty good at obeying as long as maybe uh, a, a youth pastor or someone that we respect or a dorm supervisor or a boyfriend or a girlfriend maybe like that you're trying to impress. We're good at obeying in front of them. What do you do when no one's watching? How's your obedience to God in those moments? How's your obedience to God when you're sitting at home and maybe something comes across your TV or comes across your phone and you know that it wouldn't be pleasing to God? Do you sit there and kind of like, ah, ah, no one's here. How is your obedience? Then secondly, how is your sanctification? I want to explain these words to you because it's something that you could possibly get tripped up on. Verse number 12, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is not a statement of work salvation, okay? That is a statement of sanctification. How are you doing after salvation? Are you learning more? The Bible refers to it as babes in Christ. It always breaks my heart when you can see a gray-headed person or a college student or someone who has a diploma after their name that by the world standards they are educated and spiritually mature but in God's eyes they're a baby that should not be said of us the greatest education that you can give yourself is right here in this book and I don't care if you can pass the MCAT MTAT T-cat, whatever, okay? All those initials that come with smart people stuff. If you can do that, but you can't have the wisdom of God, you've missed it. This work out your salvation with fear and trembling, I would cross-reference it with James chapter number 2, which is actually in your, in your application questions to read at some point. James chapter number 2, where it talks about that faith without works is dead. It's not saying that it's non-existent. It's just saying that it's dead. And if you have nothing that follows your faith and that follows your salvation, you've missed it. Then the last question is this. Not only how is your obedience to God, how is your sanctification, but how is God working on you and in you? Because so, he says this, verse number 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Here's what I want you to see as we close. Is that God has given you a pathway to joy. He's given you an example to joy in Jesus Christ. He has even given you something to look forward to in heaven. How are you progressing? How are you changing? What has God done in your life? For whatever reason, you become an adult, and it's kind of like the testimony time and the testi testifying services that we used to have. It's kind of like they stop, right? Like no one talks about what God's doing in their heart and life anymore. Can I just encourage you with this? That if someone walked up to you and said, what's God done in your heart and in your life the last three weeks? Would you have anything to say? Would you have anything to point to? I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, I, uh, I, I memorized this one verse. It was really good. I really liked it. I, I read my Bible, like, like one time, and it was, it was really good. Now, what is God doing? What have you changed? What have you maybe 
said, you know what? I don't feel like I need to do that anymore. Maybe I need to talk to this person at work. Maybe I need to change something in my habits. Maybe I need to spend more time in the Word of God. Maybe I need to spend more time in prayer. Maybe I need to pray for this. God should be working in our life. I was on a phone call just yesterday, and I quoted uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 to a guy. He was basically saying, he was asking me, he said, I don't, I don't get the big deal with Christianity. I, I, I don't know like, what the draw is. And I said, the draw is, is that it changes you. Not from, the in, not from the outside. Habits and discipline will only get you so far. But Christianity changes you from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become, you say it with me, new. What's new in your life? What's new in your Christian life? How has God progressed you and changed you? What has he taught you? What's he trying to do in your life? And how is that being shown to those around you? With every Thanks for listening. If this lesson is helpful to you, feel free to share it with someone else or let us know by emailing us at crosspoint at franklinroad.org. You can also check us out at frbc underscore crosspoint on Instagram and Twitter. We look forward to connecting with you again soon.